Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about Volt modding the 8800 GTX and some of the benefits of hardware mods and what it takes to be a hardware enthusiast and the costs of being competitive. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today I have Darren McCain. This other month I started a new modding project for the site. Yeah, I saw that out on the forums. Yeah, it's, uh, I bought myself a couple of 8800 GTXs off of eBay, which is a great place to find old video cards, by the way. And these are just the reference cards? These are reference cards from BFG, the non-OC edition, and they sit right under the Ultra in terms of clock speed and memory speed and stuff like that. Yeah, those are great cards. Yeah, we talked about BFG before, how they would take the, the reference design and then pull them out and bend them. That's how they would determine the, the hot-clocked editions versus not. These happen to be the non-hot-clocked ones, but they still have a lot of life in them in terms of overclocking. So what is it that you're trying to do? I am going to take these things, I'm going to volt mod them up and put them under liquid nitrogen and see how fast they'll go. So what is a volt mod? A volt mod is what you would do to an older video card or motherboard in some cases to adjust the core and memory voltages beyond what the reference spec was. So I see from the forum that you're planning on doing a bit of soldering here. Well, there's three things that I'm going to do to this video card. The first one is I need to move the voltage read points to the outside of the card so I can put a voltmeter in there and determine what the voltages actually are. And then the next mod is to adjust the core voltage, which would allow me to put more frequency onto the GPU. And then the third mod is also adjust the memory voltage. All of these voltages are static, so I have to be able to fluctuate them, and I do that with a uh, with a trimmer. Well, that sounds a little bit dangerous. You know, is this the type of thing that you've done before? I have done this before on other video cards in terms of what they call a pencil mod or a oh. or a paint mod, and that's where you take you'd find the resistor that actually controls the voltages, and you would paint over it with a pencil to lower the voltage across there, and that would increase the voltage. That was back when you used to be able to buy those add-on boards and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that was Athlon, the the slot Athlons, and you were able to put the golden fingers up on top. Oh, that's right, yeah. And that would allow you to adjust the multipliers, and really that was the segue into the Athlon XP and the massive overclocking you could do with the Enforce 2. So that actually sounds a lot like the type of thing we used to do when we were modifying our game consoles. I've heard about those mods. But I don't really know exactly what they were supposed to do. Well, you know, the main reason that we modified our hardware back in the old console days was just to be able to play copies of the games. Uh, One of the early forms of uh, console pirating. Although uh, these days it's not so common thanks to the games being so much more prevalent for rental and and purchase. But uh, it looks like kind of the same thing. We would take a a custom chipset and then you'd solder it onto the main board. It would really be just bypassing some of the control chips, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, that is, in a sense, what I'm doing here with the Volt Mods. It turns out that, you know, I was able to modify this one to adjust the core voltage, but I ran into a problem. What's that? When you'd reach 1.5 volts on the core, and then I'd run a benchmark to see if it actually was handling the clocks really well, it would start to crash again. I'm like, oh, well, it's running at a higher voltage. I should be able to run a higher clock speed. Makes sense. So I did a little bit of research, and it turns out that there's an overcurrent protection that's built into this card to ensure that if there was a short or something like that on the board, that it wouldn't fry the GPU. Okay, so what do you do about that? Well, there's four power phases on the 8800 GTX, and you need to reduce the voltage to each one of those to increase the overcurrent protection. So then I would be able to run 1.6 volts, according to the forum post that I found, and not fry the chip and not have it actually cut out. 
So this is all starting to sound a little bit familiar. Some of these settings, I think, are available in the software on my new cards. Yeah, the, the modern GPUs nowadays, anything from the, the 570 GTX to the uh, some of the AMD cards, all allow you to adjust the voltages within the software, either using the MSI Afterburner or some of the EVGA software. So what are the advantages of doing it with hardware? Well, the biggest advantage is the fact that you can't do this with software. With these particular cards, they were hardwired to specific voltage and specific setting. You can change the clock speed, but not the voltage. So they were actually limited. You have the enthusiast angle here where you can come in, solder on the board, kind of show off your soldering skills, and make the card do something that it was never really designed to do. This sounds a little bit like when you put a mod chip in your car to get a little extra performance out of the engine. Not exactly, because a mod chip is going to be for a daily driver. You know, you're going to get better fuel economy, but you're still going to get more out of the car on a daily basis. This is more like putting a supercharger on like a 68 Mustang. You can still use the car as a daily driver, but you're not going to really see any of the performance until you go to that weekend drag race. The same thing is true of competitive overclocking. With this particular card, being able to bolt mod it will allow me to slap some liquid nitrogen on there and pit this card against a lot of the other cards within the hardware bot system. Sounds like an exciting project, and I know we can keep checking back to see how it goes in the forums, and with a little luck, get some points. That's the plan. You want to talk about the cost of being an enthusiast. Yes. So what does that mean, the cost of being an enthusiast? That's a couple of things. That is the cost of money out of pocket. Okay. And also the cost of what it takes to run your stuff in an enthusiast manner. So I think we all understand the money out of the pocket concept. To be an enthusiast, you're buying really hardware as an early adapter. Mm-hmm. So the cost of that, I think, is pretty obvious. My question is, how cutting edge do you really need to be to be an enthusiast, especially when you look at the overclocking and competitive overclocking concept? Well, there's the early adoption cost. I mean, that's the latest and greatest. You have to have the latest and greatest. Sandy Bridge 2600 comes out. Everybody wants it. They want to see what it will do, how it will perform. And it was relatively inexpensive. So a lot of people got involved with that. Turns out it rocks on hardware bot, mostly in the, in the 3Ds, because you can run this thing at almost 6 gigahertz. You can put in a, a little tiny video card, like a 7900 GT, run a Sandy Bridge at 5.5, and take gold. But if everyone's doing it, doesn't that mean there's a lot of competition out there? There is, and that is where the cost of being an enthusiast comes into play, because now to be competitive, you have to have that Sandy Bridge processor. And it sounds like to really score the points, you have to stockpile a lot of hardware. You do. You also have to bend your hardware. So you have to buy like five Sandy Bridge processors because on average, they're going to run 5.2 gigahertz, 5.4 gigahertz. You get into 5.7 like the one I have, and it's rumored to be able to be sold for like 900 bucks. Wow. So that's the mythical golden sample, right? It is. It, well, mine's an early sample, so it suffers from cold bugs and stuff like that, but it's a fast chip. And there's a lot of them there like that. The only people that are going to pay $900 for a processor are the ones that are going to be doing this competitive overclocking. You're not going to run 5.7 on a daily basis because it's not going to run on air. 
Well, and that's another additional cost because that uh, hybrid or super cooling stuff's not cheap either. No, and you can't run it all the time. And that's the other big thing. To remain competitive, you got to stay on the leading edge. You also have to have the supporting hardware to make it worthwhile. And that would be like motherboards, that's going to be memory, that's going to be hard drives, either really fast rotationals or SSDs. So I know when I'm looking at hardware from a more practical standpoint, there's always the discussion of, has the software caught up with the hardware? Has the hardware caught up with the software? But from the enthusiast standpoint, it sounds like the hardware is driving the hardware. That's an interesting way to take it. Because, yeah, you have to have the hardware to be able to to do the enthusiast stuff, obviously. And when one portion of that goes away, the whole platform's dead. So we've talked a lot about video cards, but I know, at least in the Sandy Bridge platform, the memory really is a driving factor. Is it true to say that, at least in Sandy Bridge, that the memory is a large part of driving the hardware? It's actually the key. You know, because you can have a Sandy Bridge that will do 5.7 gigahertz, right? Right. But to really get the best performance out of it, you need to have a high memory frequency because the Sandy Bridge memory is mostly at CAS 9. Even at CAS 7, you don't really see a benefit as we talked about in a previous podcast. Right. You need to have the 2133 or the 2400 if you can find it. Or you need to lower the timings on your 2133 and ramp it up and try to get to like 3000 or something like that. Memory speed is key in making sure that the 2D benchmarks run smoothly and fast. It also helps with the 3D stuff. So we've talked about uh, memory issues on other motherboards. And I know you've expressed some frustration about your difficulty finding, well, the perfect memory. And that actually stems from when I upgraded my my main system, because I'm still running an X58, and I was swapping out my X58 LE from EVGA, because it lost the memory channel on me, which might have been just the motherboard. I didn't want to tear it apart and then put it back together and find out it wasn't it, so I was swapping boards. I was putting in a gigabyte board. Well, when I got the gigabyte board put back in, it didn't read my install of Windows, so then I started thinking, well, maybe the memory really was bad. So I started looking around, well, Am I able to buy a performance kit for a triple channel kit for X58? No. I mean, the fastest I could get was 1600. I could buy Sandy Bridge memory, but it's not tuned for X58. So in a sense, X58 is dead because I can't buy memory for it. And you mean dead from an enthusiast competition level standpoint. Exactly. Which is unfortunate because Gigabyte has made a big push with the X58 OC board. They had the G1 killer motherboards around CS 2011. Even then, after, well, G1 Killer comes out, Asus released an upgraded version of the Rampage 3 Extreme, the black edition that came with the G1 Killer card and, and an upgraded sound chip and whatnot. But the memory is dried up. The memory's dried up, so the only people that are going to be buying these boards are ones that don't care about overclocking, or just kind of in it for the gaming aspect of it, or already have the performance memory and didn't blow it up in a previous overclock or something silly like that. You're kind of forced to upgrade, it sounds like. Well, in a sense, yes. I mean, the platform is really dead from a performance standpoint, so you're going to be moving on to the next good thing. And that's where, you know, Sandy Bridge is right now, and to be competitive in the 3D benchmarks, you need to have that. The memory companies realize this, but there's still a lot of good X58 stuff around, but you can't bench it anymore. So as an enthusiast, every time a platform comes out, it's followed by the enthusiast RAM for a pretty short period of time, it sounds like. I want to say that they just do like one run, and then when it sells out, it sells out. 
regardless of how long the platform is supposed to be around. So the platform only stays viable for a very short window. Yep. You know, to be on the leading edge, you need to have top-of-the-line video card. That's around five to $600 per card. Top-of-the-line processor, if you're going to be bending Sandy Bridge chips, you buy five of them, they're about 300 each, 1500 bucks. But you can recoup some of that by selling off the duds or, I guess, average performers. Well, yeah, and you can sell them for a used price. So figure yourself for half price. So, you know, you're going to be spending at least $500 on to find a good processor. Um, back to our car analogy, that's not unlike driving a car off the lot and taking that resale hit. Exactly. Memory, for a good performance Corsair memory kit, just a dual channel kit, that's like 600 bucks. Yeah, spendy. Assuming you can buy them. You know, I went out to the Corsair site and looking for the 2400 megahertz dominators. They have them listed on the site, but you can't buy them. They're all sold out. I don't know why they're sold out, but you would think if they are going to be advertising and spend a lot of time and effort on those memory modules, they would be trying to produce as many as possible. So you have your memory kit for about five, $600. You can get by for less if you wanted to um, go with like a G-Skill brand or a Kingston or any of those other manufacturers. But you're going to be limited to whatever the, the normal is. It's like 2133 is about the max. Well, and you're taking your chances again on whether you get a good overclocking sample. Exactly. Just like with processors, memory has a limit of what it can overclock to. You know, when I was reviewing memory modules, I found that in some cases you can't change the timings because it would change the sub-timings so much that it would never boot the system. Pump more voltage into it doesn't really help. You could lower the timings. It didn't really help. You could increase the timings. That seemed to help sometimes, you know, making them from cast 9 to cast 10. But all that's going to do is make it so they can go a little bit faster. Well, I've noticed the trend in modern memory really is that there isn't a lot of overhead like there used to be. Even with the timings, the voltage, the whole nine yards, these are really coming out pretty close to their performance ceiling already. And that's really where the sub-timings come in at the factory when they're tuning these things. They're tuning them for Sandy Bridge. They're tuning them for X58. They're tuning them for, you know, X48 for that matter. And it's all in making sure you get the best performance at the stuff that you can't really change. That's really the crux of it, because you can't interchange these modules anymore. Looking back at the X58, I could have bought two Sandy Bridge kits and put, you know, just not use one of the modules. But I've done that before, since I have a lot of Sandy Bridge memory. Right. And it doesn't perform the same. You know, that supposedly runs faster, but the benchmarks are actually slower, and you can't change that. What about the impact of, like, hard drives versus SSD, for example? It comes down to, really, the SATA speed. So most X58s have, are SATA 2. SSDs are still SATA 2. In terms of 2D benchmarks, there's not much of a benefit. For 3D benchmarks, on the really long ones, they tend to load from the drive or mm-hmm. cache to the drive. And the faster the hard drive, the, you know, the faster that benchmark is going to be on just a minute scale. And then the last aspect of it is cooling. If you're going to be doing a benchmark sort of operation, you're going to be either looking at doing a phase change cooler or like a water chiller, which is a high-end water cooler, or pulling out the big guns and doing liquid nitrogen with the CPU pot. All of those have a higher cost than just going down and picking up a $50 heatsink. You know, you have for 80 liters of liquid nitrogen, that's about $120. And then you have the cost of the dewar that's going to be storing the stuff. And then the copper pot that will cool the CPU is around $300, depending on which one you buy. And then you have the insulation's cost, and then 
your whole weekend's going to be shot because you're going to be out there <laughs> using up the nitrogen before it turns into gas and then it's not around no more. And then with the single stage phase cooler, you get the longevity that you can use this thing for as long as you want, you know, as long as the compressor continues to run, which will, you know, be years in right. some cases. But you also have that additional cost where it's almost $1,000 to get one of these coolers. Oh, yeah. A lot of people buy them and then they mod them into their existing chassis so that they can run at a higher clock speed and play games and stuff like that. But, you know, they're noisy. You've heard commercial refrigerators. Oh, it's, yeah. There's no difference there. Not really intended to be in your house or office. No, not exactly. But, you know, for the people that want to have the best performance and have it last, that's the only way to go. You know, you can go with water cooling, but it's still only going to get you down to ambient temperature. Um, I talked earlier about a water chiller, which in my case, when I've done benches where I've had a, a chip that was really cold bug and I couldn't run it on the phase change, I hooked up a water cooler and instead of hooking up the radiator to it, I hooked up another water block and connected that to the single stage phase. I was able to get sub-zero temperatures, but not down to the point where it would cold bug the chip. It worked out pretty well, but you know, you're not going to run that thing all the time because the hoses are going to get condensation on them and water would be a big problem. So we've talked a lot in the past about attacking this sort of advancement in stages. Really, you can go from a high-end air cooler to the water cooler with the chiller to the phase, but the cost of your machine is kind of a constant. That is true. Looking back, you know, we have the 8800 GTX. What was that card new? Like $550. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> now you can get them on eBay for $150, $200 if you aren't looking very good. The next iteration was the, the 260 GTX, or GTX 260 in this case. What was that when it first came out? It was like $440, $450 or something like that. Right. That seems to be about the same cost. You yeah. move, up, move up to the, the 480, same sort of thing. So you always have that leading edge cost, and it's always going to be the same. You look at overclocking motherboards. If you want to get a decent one that's designed for overclocking, not to say that you can't overclock on a lower-end board, they're all going to be about $250. And that's ill regardless of which one you pick. Every every brand is going to be about that cost. Well, it's what the market will bear, really. They don't sell a lot of these things, so you're going to pay a little extra. That's true. And they don't make a lot of them either. Looking back, Gigabyte released the... It was an X58 board, the UD9, and it was their first attempt at making a quad SLI motherboard on the X58 platform. I think they made, I think they want to say 500 of them or something like that. Right. Super special edition board. A good majority of them went out to their testers and their overclockers and their sponsors. I didn't see anybody posting in a forum that actually bought one of those boards, and now you can't get them anymore. The only thing that we haven't really talked about is power supplies. Right. You know, we covered all the other stuff. The power supply is the one item that most enthusiasts never upgrade. To get a good power supply, that is $400, $300 or something like that yeah. for a good 1,000-watt power supply. And you want to get one that is a single rail nowadays because that seems to be the most stable. 1,000-watt plus if you're going to be running more than two video cards. Oh, yeah. And if you're going to be benching, you're going to want to have probably two of those running. So that doubles your cost. You know, you're going to have one for the motherboard and the CPU, and then you're going to have another one dedicated just to video cards. And this is, we're talking about benching on liquid nitrogen where the clock's are really high and you want to have the most stable power available. You can still run that off of that single power supply, but 
you don't want to be halfway through a bench and have a crash and not know why. So that's you're reducing your variables at that point. But even for an everyday enthusiast, the power supplies tend to change a lot. And you want to have the latest and greatest, obviously, but you don't want to spend $400 every week on a new power supply because it's better than the one you have. Right. I know when uh, when I talk even just a regular build, I stress the importance of getting really a good, solid foundation from your power supply so that you can build on it over the years. And don't you still have a 1,000-watt one that you don't want to get rid of? Yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it comes out of every machine I sell. When you find a good one, you hold on to it. Yeah, and I have a couple of them right now that I bench with. I also use it on the on my review bench as well. It just kind of floats around, but it's a nice, solid, stable power supply. It's not very loud, and I like it because it's modular, and I have enough plugs in there where I could run four-plus video cards on that one power supply. You know, I'm not going to be able to overclock with this thing with that many cards, but I can load up a board with the five 4850s that I have for the multi-GPU index testing, and power that off of that single power supply and not have to pull in another one just to get an extra power socket. So let's run it down. Your cost is power, which as I talked about already is a great foundation. Mm -hmm. You don't even necessarily have to have a case, but if you do, you got to have a a good one that supports really over-the-top cooling or aftermarket cooling. Well, the the cooling and also the board, because in some cases the board is going to be a little bit bigger than the standard ATX. So you're going to want to have... Like the eight expansion slots. Uh-huh. You're going to have a little extra room around it so that you can run your cables and also get fans in there. You know, Because if you have your fan right up against a card, it's not going to cool very well. You want to have some room so that the air has a chance to move around. Right. So we got the case. We got the motherboard. We've talked a lot about motherboards. Mm-hmm. RAM. RAM, which card. is the... That seems to be the crux of everything. At least with the new processors. Yeah. Video card, which is, I think, where you have the most area to play based on your budget. Nowadays, if it comes down to a choice of a video card, you're looking at the technologies that it supports. You know, if you want DirectX 11, you're going to have a later generation card. If you don't mm-hmm. really care about that too much, you're going to be running benchmarks or you just want to have a nice stable card, you can get away with a lower end one like a 260, 280, whatever. Yeah, but these days, even the top video cards from our previous generation are going to be almost as expensive as the current ones. I know with my 5870, the price hasn't changed a whole lot over the last year. No, it kind of went down to where it should have been when it launched right? in terms of price, but they're still in demand because they're solid cards. So we've got video card, and then I guess to a lesser extent, the uh, the hard drive or SSD. You know, you look at those and it comes down to the classic, well, how much storage do you need? Right. But if you're looking at an enthusiast aspect of it, you want to have something fast. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to SSDs because they're really fast and they're quiet. Me, I like rotational drive still. So I go after the Velociraptors, mostly the 10,000 RPM. I like the sound of the hard drive that it, that it makes, but it's also more stable at the higher base clock settings. And that's a little secret that some overclockers have where an SSD will get corrupted at a high at high frequencies or high board frequencies. Mm-hmm. The rotational ones are less susceptible to that, and that's why I keep those around. So what about the heat on the drives? The heat's negligible because I put a fan on there, but if you're going to be running running these in a case, you want to make sure that your case has a couple of fans over the hard drives to keep them cool and keep them quiet. Once they get warm, the bearings wear out, grease goes away, and then they get noisy. So that just leaves the cooling, which we've talked a lot about. Going with an aftermarket heat sink, working your way up into water, 
phase chillers the whole nine yards and that of course is kind of a sky's the limit in cost it is in terms of cost the good thing about cooling is that it's always there i mean that's the one item that you can always count on it really rarely changes you know you get your diy water coolers that once you buy a block that fits a universal system you're going to be using that block over and over and over again it's not like a specialized water block like what you would get on a video card nowadays same with radiator, you're going to mod that into your case. It's going to stay with the case unless you get rid of it and then you can pull that out and move it into the next one. Your pump is probably going to be the one item that you're going to have to replace. Depending on which one you get, that's $100, $200. And then hoses and, and res, that's easy. Position those wherever you want. The only time that it might come down to an issue of total cost is if you shortcut and have a leak and it fries everything. Oh yeah, that's no good. But that, again, is another cost of being an enthusiast. you got to be able to get past the fact that at any one point, something that you've done to your system beyond what is approved and what's stock can actually damage the, the hardware and kill everything. Well, I know we've talked about the hardware really from a pretty general standpoint. I think it's natural to say that if you have specific hardware questions, of course, that'd be a good opportunity to come to the forums and ask questions. One of the things I think that you'll find is that most enthusiasts at any level, whether you'd be, you know, a hardcore overclocker like Dennis or a more casual gaming overclocker like myself, is we all like to talk hardware. So come on over and talk to us about hardware. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have any questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane by subscribing to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2011. Thanks for listening.